And welcome back to the Men's Journal Everyday Warrior Podcast. I am joined by Johnny Joey Jones, who you probably already know. Uh, and I say that about all, almost all my guests because you guys are all uh, in, in the public light, except for me. Uh, Johnny, uh, and you go by Joey, correct? Either one, Joey. Jo- yeah. jo- Joey, what I will start with was a Marine, first off, yep. EOD tech, uh, which not only do you have to be a badass, you actually have to be extremely uh, smart. Uh, Joey was severely wounded in uh, Afghanistan and then... Man, we're going to go through the journal journey of how you ended up at Fox News, but this is crazy. I mean, you are representing vets uh, well and a staff sergeant, right? Yeah. Dude, it goes to the point, and I always say, you know, people, traditional military, they're like, oh, well, the officers are so educated. I'm like, bro, you have no, no clue. <laughs> I, I was a troop commander. I think four or five of my guys had master's degrees, and I still had my, my bachelor's. It's, um, uh, it's two sides of the same coin, uh, different responsibilities for a good reason. I mean— I know that's not what we're trying to talk about at this moment, but the re- the the relationship between the commissioned officer and senior enlisted is a leadership dynamic that does not exist anywhere else in corporate America. And if it did, you would see a lot more at least efficient, if not just well-oiled machines out there. And I've had to learn that the hard way. And uh, you know, you might have something akin to an executive officer, you know, within the C-suite structure, but that that relationship between someone who has only ever been trained to be that responsibility leader in the commission officer and someone who did the job and worked their way up and that senior enlisted, man, that's, that's where the sweet sauce is. A senior enlisted advisor was worth their weight in gold. Yeah. And, and for the listeners that could be, you know, if I have five deployments, they have like 12. Yeah. And, uh, albeit as an officer, you may have the final decision, but I'm going to tell you, you listen to your guys, that's your brain trust. But the thing I found is, you know, People are like, well, you shaped the culture. I'm like, I didn't shape the culture. If you want to look at, you look at the senior enlisted advisors right down to the NCOs. They're the ones doing the work day to day. They truly uh, they shaped the uh, the culture. And again, you got out as a staff sergeant, mm-hmm. medically retired. Um, Georgia. Yeah. Georgia. So differently raised than me uh, in California and NorCal where it was <laughs> bra. I mean, would you say, you know, traditional uh, American Southern values? hundred uh, percent. The main theme for us was, uh, you know, a good job away from poverty. You know, we we're just really poor. And when you're that poor, you don't know it because you have a big family, you take care of each other. You know, you're eating hamburger steak instead of sirloin and the rest of it's just gravy, man. You just work really hard. You don't worry about what you don't have and you enjoy everything you do. And, uh, you know, the other part of living in the South, somewhat poor, is generally speaking, you live among your family. You know, it's a whole trend right now called compound living. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, that's all we knew. Like, you know, we were on five acres, and my dad, my two uncles, and my grandparents all lived there. Two houses, two trailers. That's insane. The compound living thing. I, I yeah. saw a vet, uh, black American, yeah, who's like promoting yeah. uh, the I did, compound I saw, living. I saw the same thing you did. wearing a yeah, cowboy hat. buy land, and, yeah. and that's insane. I love that, though. I mean— in the South, it's pretty common. I mean, one, we have more land, just in general. I don't know about Northern California. It's 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 kind of it's more of a a lot of Northern California is is rural in in its geography, but in the South specifically, from my experience, uh, we have a little bit more land and less money, and so it's easier to buy five acres, I guess, and put two or three houses on it than to move into a neighborhood, you know. And so it's just kind of the way things were done, probably because the agricultural roots. I'm sure that's what mm-hmm. it is. Mm-hmm. Like you got to live on the land you're going to farm, right? And uh, and so it's it's a pretty cool cultural thing that I did not know wasn't everywhere. And so like I grew up, 
My dad, his two brothers, my grandparents were on the same five acres my grandfather bought. Four miles away, my mom's siblings and her mom lived on the same spot of land that her dad bought. And uh, it's just how everybody was, you know? That's that's uh, versus the nomadic yeah. sort of tradition for the majority of Americans. Yeah. And, uh, and, and what that really meant outside of like just the uh, economic benefit, what it meant was the interconnection of everyone's life. Yeah. And there's drama that comes from that, but there is a certain amount of security you can't find in life any other way. I mean, you know, my youngest uncle worked for my dad. My mom worked for his wife and her mom. And my, my middle uncle uh, w- worked on automobiles, and we had a family racing team, so he was the chief mechanic for that. You know, it's like everybody was connected in so many ways. Um, most mills were together. My grandmother Grew up with 10 siblings, and she was the oldest girl, so she only knew how to cook for a lot of people. And so for what we might have lacked in numbers making making it to 10, we made up for them being big people, <laughs> you know, and, and eating big, healthy servings. And uh, and it was just, um, you know, I said I was talking, I was having lunch a few hours ago, and I said, listen, when you grow up poor, these are the things you do, and I rattled off. And I said, and then you go to college, or you go, you go away, and when you come back, you spend an absorbent amount of money to live that way and do those things. It makes no sense at all. It's like I've, I've spent my life savings to buy a farm so that my kid can hunt and fish and work hard. And it's like we had no money growing up, and I hunted and fished and worked hard, <laughs> you know. it's like Life is uh, one uh, bittersweet circle. That's it's right. Or ironic circle. It, dude, that's, so, you know, prepping, because, guys, it's, it's 4th of July. This this will come out in uh, a few weeks after. Um, did some prep about the military recruiting. I didn't. Have you ever heard of the Southern Smile? Uh, I don't not not in this context. So I, I guess the Pentagon calls it the Southern Smile. So from the Mid Atlantic, there's a curve down into the South that goes extends into about Texas. Okay. So 18 to 26 year olds, 30 percent or 36 yeah. percent of our nation's uh, 18 yeah. to 26 year old demographic live in that area. Yeah. Yet account for 48 percent of the enlistments. Yeah. And it's almost like a warrior cast in a system. And I always used to I always used to laugh about like it seemed like uh, SF guys. Mm-hmm. Special Forces ODA guys that they were all they all had Southern accents. Like, <laughs> what is it? But it, it it's the old traditional values, yeah. the patriotism. I mean, I'm dude. I didn't have that in California growing up. I came from good folks that were conservative. We were yeah. Catholic. Uh, there was a sense of patriotism. A lot of firemen and, and cops, but uh, and fishermen. But that would that's just non-existent in California, dude. It, there's there's depth to it. I'll tell you this. I did not experience patriotism like I know it today until 9-11. I think in the South, the state you were from was as important to you as your country. I mean, you couldn't see an American flag without a Georgia flag. It wasn't a, a it wasn't anything remotely that you didn't love your country. It's that you were literally physically, geographically removed from so much that it was your community and your mm-hmm. state and maybe that college football team mm-hmm. that you carried the most pride in. You were a Georgian, you know, and um, and it was a good thing. It was a healthy thing. It wasn't it, nothing adversarial. It wasn't a relic from the Civil War or anything like that. It had everything to do with, you know, my dad never crossed the Mississippi or went north of the Mason-Dixon until he was over 40 years old. He never got on an airplane or rode an escalator until he was 55. And I flew him to Hawaii. And, you know, quintessential Jeff Foxworthy moment. They're in security line. There's this Brit next to him. They're, they're, you know, they're learning how airport security works for the first time, my parents, in their mid-50s. So, of course, they're having to go through their bag and 
leave things here. And and uh, and the Brent goes, you need some help, you know, and he kind of helps him and explains it to him. And then he goes, where are you traveling? And my dad goes, Hawaii. And the Brent goes, I'm doing fine. How are you? <laughs> you know, like that's that was as cultured as they were. But when you grow up in the South, I say it all the time, it's a hands-on lifestyle. Like yeah. I didn't know there were such things really as like call a repairman. You know, my dad built his house. He and his brothers built his two brothers' house. They built his parents' house. Not out of some arrogance of nobody else is going to do it, but out of necessity. And you learn skills. You just learn. It's a part of the culture. And when you go into the military, that is so invaluable. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you join special job fields like EOD or, or uh, you know, special combat fields like um, MARSOC or the SEALs, um, everyone on the team has a job on that team. But they're also the guy you go to for this and the guy you go to for that. Mm-hmm. They're the, the everybody is a certain slice of MacGyver. Mm-hmm. And when you grow up in the South, man, you know a little like bit. That. You know, you know how to frame. You know yeah. how to plumb. You know a little bit about electricity. You can fix any gas engine. And it's not like that's all we do. But it's like, why do we do that? Because we're buying it used, and we're buying it halfway wore out, and we got to be able to keep it going. That's why we know how to do that. You know that didn't that didn't dawn on me until I went to actually Marine Corps boot camp. That was sort of my <laughs> first, uh, you know. Uh, venture into the real world yeah. outside of California. And you talk about flags, man. California, it really means nothing. In Virginia, where I was stationed for a long time, wasn't a big deal. You get to Texas, what's well, the same thing? In, in the military, the Texans yeah, always awesome, broke right? out the flag. Yeah. The rest of us are like, get the Texan flag out of here. It's just the American flag. But, um, you know, I ended up in boot camp. I went to uh, Hollywood uh, because I'm, I'm west yep. of the Mississippi and San Diego, which was awesome. Uh, you know, guys from Louisiana, guys from Kentucky, Guy oh, from yeah. Kentucky, I could barely understand, <laughs> but was just the nicest guy. Um, and you get exposed to that, and you see, having grown up in California, where again, there's certain things that you know you just don't earn in terms of your man card because it's just not that culture. I never fired a gun before I joined the Marine Corps, which the good side of that was I had no bad habits. I was about to say you probably end up being yeah. one of the best shots in the platoon. I, I wasn't the best shot, but I ended up uh, uh, was a rifle expert. Yeah. Um, but then I got a pistol, and that was awful. I was awful I was pistol. the exact same way. Were you? Yeah, I, I did not qualify expert with a pistol until after I lost my legs. No kidding. Yeah, I, it was a, it was a it was a well then a major. I think he got out as a, a colonel. He was a Mustang. This guy had uh, like fifteen kids. He had a fifteen pack van <laughs> as the family vehicle, but he was a, a Mustang. He he helped uh, get me on uh, paper. Um, it's amazing the mentors we have along the way, man. And, and your book is 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 all about that. I mean, and what people don't understand, I, I considered Pierce to probably be the better mentors. Then sort of sure. that hierarchical, yeah, yeah. here's my commanding officer, here's my sergeant major. Yeah. I just I learned more from the guys around me. Well, there's a difference between a boss and a mentor. Yeah. And, and it's sometimes hard for the person holding you accountable to be your mentor because how vulnerable can you be with that person? You want to impress them, and you want them to believe in you and give you opportunity. It's hard to sit down and talk about your vulnerabilities, which is what a mentor should be, somebody who can help you work through that in some ways. It's hard to do that with somebody in your chain of command. And, you know, in some job fields, it's possible. Like when I was in EOD, there's a first name culture for Mm -hmm. the most part. Mm -hmm. Not for everyone, but for most part. And some of that that weight of um, I need to impress this guy was lifted off because it's like, hey, will will you keep me alive? You know, but for the most part in the military, um, you know, we're taught to – and I talk about this in a book for a moment. Like we have this healthy competitiveness. We're learning new skills while being graded on new skills – while being compared to each other on those skills. And it's a positive thing. And it's hard to translate that out into the world we live in when we leave the military because 
you either are in competition with one another, which means ultimately one of you wins and the other one loses. Mm-hmm. Is how it's viewed, which mm-hmm. is not correct. Um, or you know, or you're just not taking it seriously and you're not trying to be good at it. And so in the military, I, I mean, obviously I can speak primarily for the Marine Corps. It is such a healthy, competitive environment because I went into these things, can I physically do it? And you come out being, can I do it better than that guy and that guy and that guy? And it's a really, um, it's a warrior culture is what it is that we we lose a little bit when we come back out. It, competition makes the world go round. But there, it's so funny, man. When I get military guys on here like you, the public needs to hear more about this. America's companies need to be hear more about this, how we conduct uh, business. So, you know, within a sales department, yeah, they're all competitive. But I said in the military, we are as well to a point. If yeah. there's one guy who's just beating us all with a pistol in terms of accuracy and speed, we're going to compete. And then when the competition's over, we say, hey, what the hell are you doing? That's exactly right. Show us how you're doing yeah. that. Because ultimately, he wants you to be the best version of yourself because yeah. he's covering or you're covering his six as you enter the uh, the room. Um, well, we say you're strong as your weakest link. It, and there's always a weakest link. Yeah. It's just how weak is your link compared to the competition That's you're exactly going up right. against. Yeah. Um, uh, the, the, I'm grateful for the military. I know you are as well. Ultimately, you wanted to see the world get out of the environment to, to provide more opportunity. I, I, how many people in your, your family went to, uh, to college? I'm the first. And, and were you using the military also? as sort of a springboard for that? Hey, you get a free education. So when I graduated high school in 2004, Mm -hmm. from my mom's side and my dad's side, generationally, nobody before me had made it through 12th grade and, and walked the stage in a, in a cap and gown. Now my sister had a GED. I think my uncle Jeff ended up getting one after I graduated and he's like 20 years older than me. Uh, But that just wasn't the expectation or the reality. And so because they were so far behind in that respect, going to college wasn't expected of me. Graduating high school, staying out of trouble, and not starting a family until I did those two things were the expectations because that's what you were that, – that, the culture, that's what was happening. And so they were 10 years behind the times, I guess, you know. And so going to college was an option, but it wasn't an expectation my parents did not know how to prepare me for college or expect it of me. So after graduating high school, I graduated at 17, which ended up being kind of a mm-hmm. blessing. And uh, when I graduated high school, I had that year to kind of try community college and working. And, of course, the hourly job, you get a promotion, so you drop out of community college, and you're like, hold on just a minute. you know. And uh, the Marine Corps was a way to do something more because I couldn't afford college and hadn't put myself in a position mm-hmm. to have it paid for. Mm-hmm. And then college became a result of my time in the Marine Corps. And so I used the GI Bill and vocational rehab after I got injured to go to Georgetown. Have you seen the uh, percentage? It's extremely low, but have you seen the percentage of vets that actually use the GI Bill? It's really low. And it's really a, a gambit. Like they they offer this to you like, hey, you can um, give it to your family. Mm. And it's like, well – there are so many opportunities now for funding. I think <laughs> what I think they do is they like they kind of talk you into giving it to your family, knowing they're probably not going to use it either. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is, but mm-hmm. I feel like, in my opinion, and I always look, maybe this is just the maybe this is conservative in me. I've got four years of school paid for. I've got to raise my kids for the next 15 years. Say they're toddlers when I get out. To me, it makes more sense to take that college tuition go to college and earn more money and be more educated 
and raising them the next 15 years so they can get their own scholarships than to hold myself at a disadvantage in education so I can give this GI Bill to them in 15 years. Was there, you know, the return on invest, I don't have a business degree, but to me that makes a lot more sense. And so when I mentor guys, that's what I tell them is if you think you're, if you want to earn money and you want to provide for your family, use that college now, bet on yourself. Don't, don't bet on the pass, the pass, uh, um, on being pacified to the to like you limit yourself for the next fifteen years in hopes that this will pay for your kid's college. Hope is not a, uh, a recourse, yeah. and I could not agree with you more. And and, and again, Marine Corps paid for my college because I, I did the MESEP program. Yeah, but you used the GI Bill while you're there. Yeah, and then the Navy sent me back to uh, both in Texas. Strangely, dude, <laughs> I ended up. I, I flew from San Diego to College Station. I called my mom, not in tears, but I'm like, I hate it out here. <laughs> She's like, you, she said, if you if you called me. Uh, to cry uh, or for a shoulder to cry on, call somebody else because you're right. getting a free education. She said, if you don't like it, uh, finish school quickly. That's a good mama. Oh, yeah. She yeah. she was my emotional rock, but she was also, uh, she was stern. She grew up, yeah. you know, Fisherman was a, a father. So they didn't have much, you know, four brothers. Uh, That's three brothers. So, yeah. Um, why the Marine Corps? Uh, Uniforms. Why the Marine Corps is the exact same answer to why the military. Mm-hmm. Everything I wanted out of joining the military is what the Marine Corps offered. Uh, you know, you got be all you can be or, you know, sell the shining seas and travel or, you know, get an education. The Marine Corps was, eh, you probably don't have what it takes. You're probably wasting your time even being here. We will post that. Have you the poster? <laughs> no. Uh, it's, uh, we're, we're, we're not promising you a rose garden? Yeah, yes, yes, uh, yes. It, uh, we'll post that, but that thing, so when I speak to companies, that's in my uh, brief. Yeah. What company... Or organization says we don't uh, we don't think you have what it takes, and then they get their their recruiting uh, quotas pretty much year after year compared exactly. to the other services. It's the challenge, and I think we've lost. Again, I'm I'm weighing in with my personal opinions here, but we've lost the the willingness to accept challenge, man. And and I'm so proud that we still have 33,000 kids that enlist in the Marine Corps to seek that challenge. We have institutionalized insecurity and comfort, and, and so what we've done is we've taught. These these next two generations of Americans, the the younger millennials, the Gen Zers, we've taught them, hey, you know what? You can't make it on your own. You can't bet on yourself. You can't make it without our help. You probably don't have what it takes to raise kids, so don't go have too many of them. You can't uh, you can't or you can't start at the bottom and climb the ladder. We have institutionalized insecurity within our culture so much that you know the military has has made this incredibly bad calculation of following suit mm. rather than being what the out, being the outlier. Now with that comes I think you can't sever military recruiting and its troubles with culture and society from a 20-year war. I mean there's it's it's more conflated than that, but the consistency of hey, do you have what it takes to do this? Uh, human beings respond to a challenge even if they don't know it. And it's in our nature, it's in our DNA. I mean we have three three, three Fs that that motivate us the most, which is fear, food, and family. And so we are motivated by those three things because our ancestors back from living in a cave were motivated. It is truly necessary for survival. And anything you can do to tap into that for people, Mm. whether they know it or not, is going to motivate them because it's in their DNA. No matter how they've been conditioned and learned behavior pulls them away from it. And, um, And so the Marine Corps did that. Hey, do you want to come do things you don't think you can do? Let's see. I mean, like, that's a pretty cool promise. You know, I, 
people are like, well, you must not have loved the Marine Corps because you, you, you split and you went to the, uh, to the SEALs. And I said, that's actually not the case. Um, uh, the Marine Corps laid the foundation for me. Of course, my, of course my parents were recorded that. Mm-hmm. They laid the real foundation in terms of an adult. Uh, the Marine Corps laid the foundation. And like you, it wasn't a lack of aptitude. It wasn't a lack of capacity. It was just, dude, I couldn't focus at 18. I wanted yeah. to have, like, whatever was fun, skiing, mountains, that's where I was. Yeah. Screw sitting in the classroom for 90 minutes at a time. Yeah. Um, but the Marine Corps is just unlike any other organization. Um, and, and when I joined the SEALs, they're always like captain intensity. <laughs> uh, but what, what do you think, and I, and I do want to get to your tours in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, you had great parents. They laid that foundation. What do you think are the core things you learned from the Marine Corps that, will, that you'll continue to use throughout the rest of your life and teach your children? Probably the most important thing I learned from the Marine Corps was how to uh, find value in others, how to find what they bring to the table. My dad, my dad showed it to me, but I didn't learn it from him. I learned it from the Marine Corps. Well, my dad taught me, he had these two guys that worked for him, Tiger and Eugene. And that's all I know them by. Mm-hmm. And they were literal comic book characters. They worked for my dad doing the hardest job next to roofing you can do because they didn't have the the, the ability to do anything else because they were always in trouble and that, they, they were vagrants in that way. But my dad treated them with respect. He gave them responsibility and they always fulfilled it. And it was real simple. Nobody else treated them that way. Nobody else expected that of them. He needed it from them, expected it of them, and because of that, they wanted to fulfill his expectations. When I joined the Marine Corps, that I learned those lessons over again because I wanted to be a PT stud. Like I wanted to, you know, if it, if we were going to be graded on it or tested on it, I wanted to be the best at it. I'd never been the best. I was a 165-pound, 5'10 offensive lineman. Like, my only skill was to get off the ball quicker because I was going to be hurting if I didn't. And I loved it because the expectation was a little bit lower, right? Like, hey, that dude's dude's going up against a 300-pound cornbread-fed dude. Like, if he stops him for five seconds, we're good, you know. And so when I got to the Marine Corps, it was my opportunity to – to start showing myself, could I be the best? And I, and I got really involved in that mentality. And then I'd have these Marines that weren't the best. And you got two options there, resent them for it or find something that they can be the best at or they can bring to the table. When you start putting together a team that you didn't pick, that you were given, I mean, the road, it, that's a big. That's not a fork in the woods, that's a T. You can go left or you can go right. And – you know, things fell that I had the discernment to understand, hey, this guy's going to be good at that. Let's put him in that position. This guy's going to bring this to the table. We're not all going to go out and run our three miles yeah. in 18 minutes, yeah. but we're all going to make sure we all go out and run our three miles in 24 minutes. Mm. And uh, and that was that – was, the Marine Corps put it into practice and showed it to me and broke it down Barney style, yeah. I guess. I guess when people want to denigrate the military is they miss, they miss that, you know uh, – People ask, hey, well, how'd you lead the military? I'm like, this is simple, man. I led through love. I love my men and women a lot more than I hated the enemy. In fact, I was indifferent about the enemy. And what people fail to realize is, you know, one, we as a culture, and again, my opinion is we totally lack accountability. You see it with what's going on in D.C. right now, leaders that can't take accountability. But uh, I always come back to, like, parenting. Ask how many parents I have in the room that raise a hand. and said, hey, if you see your child do something wrong, what do you do? We hold them accountable. How is that any different than dealing with adults, uh, adults? the highest form of compassion and love is accountability. Yeah. It's because you want to create good, competent human beings who are going to contribute to society and can stand on their own two feet. 
that's how I always uh, viewed my junior Marines and and junior SEALs. And God, I I hope I did my job and and prepared them to be better than we were. You know, I never saw myself as a leader. Um, I never framed myself as a leader. But from day one, I was told by the Marine Corps, set the example. Yes. And you don't, and it's not until you gain age and life experience that you look back and go, well, that's what leadership is. If you can be consistent, you don't even have to be correct. And uh, and that is so true that that if if they believe that they can rely on you, um, they'll follow you on a bad decision. And you know what? That bad decision becomes a good one because everyone's on board with it. And uh, and it takes a long time. It does take some emotional intelligence and some life experience mm-hmm. to learn that. The the Marine Corps is what I can speak from, but the military in general just expedites that because it's life and death, real world situations. You know. I love how you always say hey, I can speak to the Marine Corps. I, yeah. You know, funny enough, I, the Marine Corps sort of breeds you to to, yeah. to be competitive. It seems like yeah. hate for the Army, <laughs> and then you get in Iraq, and you're like, "Hey, the 101st is actually pretty, uh, That's pretty exactly damn right. good." And they bring tanks, um, dude. It's as if you're reading off my my keynote slides because when I talk <laughs> about leadership, I say leadership. At the end of the day, people have all these definitions as behavior, and consistent behavior leads to exceptional outcomes. Bottom line, yeah. And, and I always call, you know, I did have a Marine Colonel that said said to me, "Mike, if you forget all the leadership principles in the Marine Corps, don't forget this one." Set the example or lead by example. Mm-hmm. Um, again, people will be what people can see. That's right. Yeah, that's that's a, that's amazing, man. When you know, I never had the luxury, or I should say, the uh, the opportunity or privilege to serve with the Marine Corps as a Marine in combat. I served next to you guys, but um, you you must have been exceptionally proud of the Marines standing to your left and right uh, when 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 the time called for it. I, I never worried. Like, what was so funny about this, and it, it takes age, man, and distance to look back and appreciate mm-hmm. it. And on most things, that's just kind of human experience. But we had this unit, and I don't mind using the unit names because I, I love all of them. Like, we had this unit 2-2 that had just been put through it in 2010. And uh, they earned it, man. They earned respect. They were they they had been down in the Helmand province mm-hmm. uh, just hooking and jabbing. And I was... I got there with them towards the end of their deployment, got in ticks with them and uh, complex ambushes and, and these t- uh, tactical environments where they they worked so well. And then comes in this Unit 3-1, and their history was they had been involved in a controversial, I can't remember if it was Haditha Dam, one, mm-hmm. one, of, the Iraq, uh, one of the Iraq controversies. Unfortunately, yep. there yes. were too many. Yes. And they had been put on a MEW. They had been put on a, a ship deployment instead of a combat deployment for a couple of cycles as a unit. And at some level of wisdom in Marine High higher, uh, Command, they said, hey, we're going to send this unit to Afghanistan just as the war is at its worst. And that unit got inundated. They had some old combat guys, but for the most part, it was inundated with every, you know, staff sergeant, gunnery sergeant, sergeant major, and first sergeant from recruiting and drill instructor and all these, all these folks that were cycling into the unit looking for their first combat deployment. So it was tough because, like, the experience was was visibly different. And the reason why I bring that up is even still, I never worried. I knew there was going to be a learning curve, but I never worried about their will to learn mm. or their will to be in the fight once they understood what the fight was going to be. And that's exactly how it played out. I mean, I got injured fighting alongside three one Marines uh, that were just giving it to them, you know. It, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I, I'm probably totally wrong. Did did they lose like 25 guys on their deployment? That, I don't know the total number for 3-1 because by that point, the way the units were broken up in that part of Afghanistan, I mean, you had you had elements of four different battalions there, plus you had elements of 3-1 in four different other areas. 
Um, I don't know what their total numbers were because so many of the injured were supplemented. Like yeah. none of us from yes. EOD were three one Marines, mm-hmm. but we were operating with three one. So I'd say all of our numbers count for that, and yes. it probably was huge when, when they were farming you guys out. Or yeah. Did they farm you out like in That's pairs? Exactly or, right. We yeah. go. We it's funny. We have this shadow command structure, and I, I don't know your audience specifically, so I hope I can it's say this in men. a way. It's mostly So yeah. So what it is is you have this battalion stru- your regimental structure, right? Regiment, battalion, company, platoon. And you have leaders, commission officers at each level, uh, and you have senior enlisted at each level, and you can operate all the way down to a fire team, which is, you know, depending on the assets needed, four to eight men, and all or a squad, eight to eight to fifteen men, and um, or you can maneuver as a company of two or three hundred. And uh, so as Marine Corps EOD, when we're stateside, we are a company of 90 and we were like we were a platoon for 100 years and then one day they said we're going to make you a company i've got a plank i'm a plank owner for the company it's a change of name that's yeah. all yeah and uh and so as eod company first eod company on the west coast we were responsible for providing direct eod support for the entire first marine division which mm-hmm. is all the infantry mm-hmm. and and contingents uh everything but basically but logistics and air wing we're responsible for being for being deploying with them but there's so much pride and kind of unnecessary division that when we deploy, we bring our own boss with us. Yes. We deploy as, as, a, as a company light, so we have to leave some guys behind because we're going to tr- trade out halfway through a year. So about half, 60% of us deploy, we bring a boss with us, and we're, we're a, a monolithic unit. And then we get subdivided in two or three-man teams and placed in other infantry companies all over the area of operation. Well, even throughout that deployment, we still report back to that boss because mm-hmm. that's the person mm-hmm. that gets us the tools we need, the equipment we need, the information we need. Unfortunately, when you're dispersed in two-man teams, somebody gets injured or killed, that other guy can't operate. Yes. So that boss we bring with us reshuffles the cards. Yes. But then on the day-to-day, you've got your infantry commander, and you're supporting him. And uh, it's a very unique relationship because here I am an E5 or E6, there's probably in that in that environment there's an O three or O four, probably an O three, a captain. And that captain's responsible for all the operations in that area, but you're responsible for anything that involves EOD work. And you really have to learn to have a very professional, subordinate relationship with someone that you're eventually going to tell what to do. And it's a really unique and also what is how old is that O three? He's your age. He might exactly. be a year or two exactly. older. The more you yeah. explain, it sounds like marriage. But uh, It is. Yeah. That's exactly right. And so why, why do I bring all that up? Why is that complicated? And stuff? It teaches you professionalism. It teaches you to have trust and faith in somebody, to know that they don't think the way you do, but they think in a way that's very successful for what their responsibilities mm-hmm. are. I mm-hmm. learned in Afghanistan what true responsibility is. The responsibility of a commissioned officer, especially a younger one, an 02, 03, 04, the responsibility he has, and the majority of my work for were men, but there were some women as well, is that he doesn't get to create the culture, but he's responsible if culture isn't there. Mm-hmm. He doesn't get to make all the decisions, but he's responsible for every bad decision that's made. And if you don't appreciate that, and I'd say the one misnomer, the one negative in the culture of the Marine Corps is we don't preach that soon enough and often enough we don't explain to junior marines the responsibility of command and uh and some of us are lucky enough to see it and learn it um and i appreciated the commission officers as much as any of them because 
it's kind of like being in charge of kids that ain't yours. Yeah. You know? And it's like, I didn't get to teach them everything they know. I just have to believe somebody did. And they don't have to love me at birth. I just hope they do. Yeah. You know? And so it's like, there's a lot there that was very interesting for me. I loved it. It was learning, learning people. I mean, deployment was a master's degree in five different things. Chief among them are people, as you said, and just Probably organizational yeah. leadership, man. It's interesting how you bring up uh, professionalism. Um, and you look at how our national leaders conduct themselves. And it's almost the antithesis of what we expect in the military. <laughs> Sometimes I'm a little disappointed because I think people use professionalism as a guise to avoid conflict. Sometimes, like, <laughs> oh, no, no, exactly no. Well, right. it, would, it would be Respect unprofessional. Respect the office. Yeah. yeah. It'd be unprofessional if I, if, if I called yeah. out. And I'm like, no. If you call them out in a professional, tactful way, maybe not in public, internally, then it's not unprofessional. And again, everything with, with, with tact. But yeah, the, the whole officer enlisted thing, man, well, one Mustang, um, I never understood it. Uh, it, we, we, it, was, it got bitter sometimes in the SEAL teams. There was, there was a, a great divide, especially as you went into the tier one units. And at the end of the day, I mean, the last word is team. Yeah, in that organization, and sometimes we were anything but, which is sad to say. That's tough. Yeah. That's and, and we still I guess, got it done. We still got it done. We just dysfunctional in a way. Two things there. One, special operations in general, but the seals are still pretty young. Yeah. I don't think people. Oh, under, yeah. I don't think people respect that. What What do the Green Beret have on the seals? Time. Yeah. You know. It, you know. And that's that's I see, I see that myself in reflection. Um, so that's one thing that's difficult too. You know, the Navy understood the marketing tool they had, and whether or not they used it appropriately, I don't know, you know. Uh, but to take it back to the officer side, there are two types of officers that make up your top and bottom 10%. I, love, I want to hear this one. Yeah. Academy grads and Mustangs. Uh, yep. They're, yep. They, they account for the majority of your best. They also account for the majority of your worst. And it's all about the perspective they get and when they get it. It is, it is so funny that you say that. It was, it was if, as if you fall on either side of a— of a wall. Mm -hmm. You're either, for the Mustangs especially, I was shocked. Yeah. Either just the worst mm -hmm. or they were amongst the uh, the best. Yeah. And the Academy guys, I gotta, I gotta say, man, uh, West Point, Air Force Academy, and we've got a bunch of West Pointers that are come, now coming direct to SEAL training. It's, yeah. Uh, and a lot of people don't know that, the yeah. cross, the cross pollination. Yeah. Is, uh, but the, the Academy officers were, were top notch. Yeah. Um, in, in my, my opinion. But when I say they could be the bottom 10% for different reasons, yeah. Well, they, well, they can be over analytical. Mm hmm. And and not make decisions because of it. It's almost like they were exposed to too much information, and and uh, and that's that was when I say negative. That's what I would see in those guys sometimes. Yeah, either either character issues, which would put them in the top, the bottom ten uh, percent, or as you hit it, I, I said you know not bad guys, just too smart for their own good. That's exactly right. Paralysis through analysis. Yeah. Put this man in intel. <laughs> you know? we, we we saw that where you know they would want to like look at the hypotenuse of the angle at which we yeah. were going to shoot somebody and you're like, Hey man, somebody punches you in the face. What do you do? Yeah. You punch them right back. That's right. It's as simple as that. Yeah. And it was often like, you know, you'd have a guy who came into the SEAL teams or, or the Marines from Harvard yeah. that were either exceptional or, or suffered from paralysis or analysis. And then the corn fed guy who came out of the university of Nebraska, it was just like, That's right. let's just attack them. That's, and in the, the Mustangs, it, it, usually it wasn't a character problem. It was a youth, you don't know you're not still enlisted problem. That's really what it would be mm -hmm. most, uh, most of the time. You don't realize you're not a sergeant major right now. You, you, you did not flip that switch. And, uh, 
And I get that. Like, I've got a really good friend. So there's another avenue of officer that's very specific. You, you may have experienced it in your career called a limited duty officer. Mm-hmm. And so these are, and for the folks in the audience that don't know, when you go through your enlisted rank structure, um, you either commission into the commissioned officer structure or you can become what's called a warrant officer, which yes. means your education and background is that of an enlisted Marine, but now you have gone through training, proved yourself to be a leader that can hold responsibility, and you are very limited in the responsibility you're given as a warrant officer. And then there's this patchwork in between. And it doesn't serve a lot of purpose unless it's a highly technical field, and these are called limited duty officers. So these are warrant officers that still don't have a specific education to be commissioned who are uh, given the rank of commissioned officers, captain, lieutenant colonel, or captain, major, lieutenant colonel, um, and they can't surpass lieutenant colonel, they mm-hmm. can't leave their job field, mm-hmm. and they have to stay at a smaller unit. But, you know, if you see an LDO lieutenant colonel, you're looking at yeah. a colonel or a, or a one-star in experience and age and respect and responsibility. We had some exceptional LDOs that, yeah, were just some of the most seasoned guys and usually the oldest in the room. Yeah. Uh, and when they talk, you listen, especially, you know, if, if you respect them. Um, so your second tour in Afghanistan. So I had one tour in Iraq. Mm-hmm. My second tour in my career was my tour in Afghanistan. Where, where'd you go in Iraq? Uh, we started in Al-Assad, which was a complete, it, it was night and day every day. So we were EOD security. I wasn't, I wasn't EOD yet. It was 2007. I came in in 05. Mm-hmm. So I was the rank of corporal. I was a uh, truck team leader because we were mounted mobile security. And what the funny thing is, kind of to take a step back and try not to be too wordy here. When I first got to Hawaii, I went through, I went to EOD school, or I went to uh, comm school in 29 Palms, California. My only understanding of the Marine Corps, it, like what I believed to be the truth, was what you see in Full Metal Jacket. The, the biggest Billy badass in the movie was like combat journalism, right? Everybody went through, like all you watch in that movie is the first half is there in boot camp learning to kill people. And so my understanding of the Marine Corps was everybody lived in a squad bay, everybody carried a rifle first, and some of us were deemed smart enough to learn other skills. And so my recruiter sold me on uh, communications, electronic repair. In my mind, that meant I was the dude with the radio next to the commanding officer while we're getting shelled. Like, that's what I thought I was going to do. I get to 29 Palms, and it's like you're in a sterile environment. You've got to ground yourself to the table. Now you're going to replace components on a circuit board for a Singar's radio. And I'm like, this is, I mean, this is not what I signed up for. So when I get to Hawaii, which is where I got sent, I was – first in my class and they got their first set of Hawaii orders in several years and they're like you're gonna go and I'm like I don't want to go to Hawaii I'm from Georgia I want to go to North Carolina like no you're taking these so I get there number one I can't order at the drive-thru nobody can understand me and number two the the good thing about Hawaii was it was a special unit it was comprised in a certain way and ultimately they just had more radio repairmen than they needed really is what, what I'm trying to say and so the master guns comes in in his golf attire with his coffee cup and he goes, I need one of you new guys to go on rim pack and work in the galley. Well, I didn't know what the word galley meant. And I'm like, <laughs> okay, I'll go work in the whatever, anything other than this. So I spent three months on the USS Rushmore flipping pancakes. I'm like, anything is better than yeah. flipping pancakes. Yeah. So I ended up just volunteering for everything. And the saving grace, the, the kind of hidden opportunity there was the, the Pentagon was spending so much money. I get back from rim pack. They're using different radios I don't know how to work on. I go to coaches course, come back, different radios. I'm so far behind, I can't stay in this job field. So then they just loan me out to anybody that needs me. And I ended up doing mounted security that way. 
ended up working for EOD that way in Iraq and uh, and learned it that way. We started Al-Assad. We ended up working in a, in a town outside of Al-Assad called Al-Baghdadi for a long mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And it was night and day. Al-Assad was Camp Cupcake. On the other side of uh, Route Bronze and Uranium was war. And, you know, you go out, you'd respond to an ID, you'd, you'd find one, a truck would get hit, you'd get shot at from further away than you could see. You'd come back, and it's like there's an, there's an Air Force nightclub on this base. And it's like it was such an odd thing. It, it, it felt like one foot in, one foot out the whole time. It, it was amazing how isolated certain areas were. Where you go, I, most of my deployments were Ramadi. You'd go to Ramadi, and then all of a sudden fly to Baghdad, and it's like the seven chow yeah. halls, and it was insane. Um, and then on to uh, Afghanistan, alongside the 3-1, yeah. you get wounded severely. Do you remember that incident, or did you sort of wake up and nope, uh, vividly, vividly? One of one of the biggest misnomers and is that uh, when you get blown up, you get knocked out. Mm-hmm. Unless something hits your head or shock takes over, most of us have a really good recollection mm-hmm. of of the incident. So for me, when we went to Afghanistan in 2010, President Obama was broadcasting ending the war for no other reason. He was up for reelection in 2012. That's just, that's the truth of it. Mm -hmm. That's not to assign blame. Mm -hmm. That's just the truth of it. And so we were going in kind of pushing a snowball uphill a little bit because the the Taliban made the calculation that they thought they could get us out quicker Mm -hmm. if they pushed in. And also they were afraid that if we pulled out and they weren't there to take over, they would lose ground. So the Helmand province was, was agriculture. That's where they grew all the poppy. Poppy is what they used to make heroin, black tar, opium, that's the cash crop for the Taliban. We had done a good job pushing into that area, but as we were as we were deciding that we're pulling out, the troop surge from 08 and 09 was coming down, and there were less Marines to cover the same area, and the Taliban filled in on that. So we rolled in in 2010, and they had fought really hard in 8 and 9 to take a lot of ground. But now we got less dudes to hold it with, and the Taliban slowly starts increasing their activity to the point that we're in a full-on fight by the summer of 2010 that we did not know we were going to have. Mm. And uh, and IEDs were the number one way to, to get us. So they got really – the IEDs in Iraq and Afghanistan are completely different. The IEDs in Afghanistan were as simple as can be. Loop circuit stuff, no metal, use just a blast, kill the dude that steps on it, discombobulate everybody else, jump out and shoot at them. Uh, in Iraq, they tried to use the IEDs to kill as many people as they could. So shrapnel and – complex IEDs and put them up in the walls and, and get creative with them. And in Afghanistan, they're like, nope, we're just going to use this IED to uh, ruin their day and harass them. And so what that meant for us as EOD techs was if you've ever played the game Mousetrap, the more component, the, the more you add to it, the less likely it's going to go all the way through. IEDs are like that. The more complicated you make them, the better it is for me because there's a better chance you screwed up. If you make the IED really simple – it's going to be hard for me to defeat that ID unless I just find it first and, and can look at the ground and hope that I know what it is. So our numbers in casualties went through the roof. We took 80 guys, suffered a 33% casualty rate, and, uh, and that's killed in action. And wounded, mm. that's wounded enough to be taken out of the fight all the way to killed in action. Uh, I think in three years out of a job field of, what, 285 when I came in, we lost, you know, like 9, 11, 7. And so it was tough. That deployment, we lost more than a handful. We had, I think, over a dozen injured catastrophically. And um, and it was we were shuffling the cards just to have a two-man team available because uh, we had nobody else to come fill in for us because everybody that wasn't there had just gotten back 
or was preparing to relieve us. There, I mean, we didn't have enough EOD techs for the for the fight the Taliban was giving us and the way we were having to fight it. And so it was just a unique environment in 2010 in Helmand. And they decided in an effort to slow down the IED attacks throughout the region, they wanted to essentially go upstream and take this place called Safar Bazaar where they knew the Taliban was uh, building IEDs and, and stockpiling components. Well, because of some of the politics involved, like if you'd asked me, Joey Jones, what do you do to take Safar Bazaar? I'd say, I've 10 JDAMs, just level it, raise the whole city. And then we go in. And then we'll go in and, and take pictures. And um, But unfortunately, probably for good reason, we had to go in and take the town as if it were Washington, D.C., and we were preserving the monuments. So the first thing we did was said, hey, all you guys that live there, we're coming. We even sent uh, kind of a, a forward mm. convoy just to kind of mm -hmm. draw bad guys out and said, hey, we're coming. You need to leave the town. So um, – that's what happened. But when the bad guys left, they took all those IEDs that were stockpiled and made a minefield out of the city. We found 207 operable IEDs in two square kilometers. That doesn't count everything that should have gone off but didn't or wasn't finished uh, main charge without a power source yet. And so hundreds of uh, explosive hazards buried in the city in walls, alleyways. We went five and a half days uh, just rocking it. Uh, no casualties. Oh, my team worked about 38 IDs. We had more than 50 between the six EOD techs that were there. And um, the sixth morning, we started going through the buildings. And the first building we wanted to get to was the one we thought was the high-value target, the storage building with all the IED components in it. Well, I mean, it was empty because the IDs were in the ground. But what they left in the buildings were of interest. There were components and there was U.S. ordinance that had been re recovered from the battlefield that was suspect of how it got there. And as we started prosecuting that, we said, hey, we need to get some forensic guys here because this is going to be important. And uh, my teammate picked up a Lutu, which is a giant candle uh, that you deploy from aircraft, and it lights up the night sky, puts it on his shoulder, walks it from the building across an alleyway we, we had just cleared, puts it behind a, a hip-high hip wall, that sectioned off a courtyard, and a light bulb went off in my head that these Lu-2s are really bad about getting uh, their fuse hung and not going off. So I was worried that we were going to be taking pictures of stuff, and this thing was going to turn into a giant fireball. Mm -hmm. So my teammate walked off to go solicit the forensic guys. The engineer that was providing security, a real close friend of mine, Daniel Greer, was standing next to me. He took a few steps back, and I went over to inspect that Lu-2 to see if it, what condition it was in. And that's when I stepped on the IED. We didn't know it was there. You know, from my experience, uh, I think if you ever met uh, Matt Bradford, um, the name lost both uh, no sight, familiar. no uh, vision. No yes, problem. I know exactly who he is. And, and uh, Rob Jones, and, and just both Marines. Yeah, both uh, the so Rob and I recovered together. No kidding. And next door to each other. And we would get each other's mail because we had the same last name and same rank. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I know him really well. Yeah. And that guy's ran 30 marathons in 30 days. He's Amazing done some exceptional dude. stuff. Yeah. Amazing dude. First time I actually met him, I met him both. They were talking. And I came up and uh, I didn't want to interrupt the, uh, the conversation. <laughs> Finally, Brad, you know, Matt, through, through uh, his just spidey senses, he said, Rob, is somebody standing right by me? He's like, yeah, uh, that's Mike Sorelli. And, and introduced myself. But, um, it seems like, you know, 
the guys with 10 fingers and 10 toes have problems reintegrating. Something about amputees, it, it just, you're like, hey, this is, this, is, this is the rest of my life. This is what I'm faced with. I either thrive or just completely shut down. And I've met very few amputees that are, I mean, all of them are just still high performing. They're finding ways to, to accomplish amazing things. I'm sure there's some out there that, that spiraled, but what is it, what in your mindset, when, when you're working through those injuries, I mean, what's the process you go through? There's a, layers to answer this yeah, question. Yeah, I know, I know. And, uh, and, and first and foremost, kind of probably where your mind is, is um, w- when you're humbled to that level, you have no choice but to go back up, I think. That's part mm. of it, right? You're, you look in the mirror and see somebody different, you know? Th- so when you're humbled to the point that you just can't physically do the things you used to do, like go to the restroom, um, you, you just have to start setting goals and meeting them. And I think it's a learned behavior. Like, oh, my God, I can set a goal and meet it still. What other goal can I do? What other goal can I do? And I think it's a little bit of an arc. Like that first few years after injury, there's an excitement of I'm going to get this back. I'm going to get this life back. Like I'm, the, you know, there's technology here. There's people to help me. There's, you know, you're, you don't get to – some guys do, but you don't have a lot of time to sit around and worry about what you lost because every day – when you're recovering in that time frame, I don't know about today, but 2009 through 2012, mm-hmm. when you're recovering in that very vital mm-hmm. window where most of us were made amputees, um, there's th- a full court press at Walter Reed and Bethesda and Balboa and, and Samsey, Bamsey to, um, to really provide everything they can to us and, and to get us back, quote unquote, on our feet. Um, but there's another angle to this that I think people don't understand. Um, when you come back and you've got all your fingers and toes, you're not treated like a hero the way we are. Mm. There's not a visual uh, indicator to the level of your suffering and sacrifice that the amputees have. And so I think it's less about what we do well and more about what those guys struggle with that we don't. And uh, I always have to keep that in perspective. Like, there's no better time in the history of being a warrior to be catastrophically injured than when I got injured. Um, there was no better time in the in a human being's life to be injured than in your early 20s because an early 20-year-old Marine can survive anything. You know, my buddy Chase used to say, hey, I can take a block of seed to the chest, you know. like, And, and so it's like your body is is young and it recovers fast and you – have been treating it well because you do nothing but eat, sleep, more, you know. And so, you know, it's a good situation as far as the factors in, can, involved in recovering. It, it's a good situation to be in. Men that come back and they are suffering from a traumatic brain injury, they may serve two more deployments before yeah. it comes to yes. full fruition. Uh, the latency of what they're dealing with, coupled with the fact that they're not, it's not being acknowledged by others. So, how can they acknowledge that they're injured? on top of the most traumatic thing you'll ever experience in serving our country during a time of war is leaving the military. And when you stack those three th- three aspects on top of each other, how can you expect that man to recover the way I did? I, I am Knowing what I know, I don't. The military teaches you to do your job well. Yeah. We do not prep people no. uh, to, 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 to get out. But that shouldn't be a core competency of the military. That's where I depend on some other organization to create a program that transitions guys and gals out in a, in a, in a better fashion. 
to, to, to put that on the military would be to take them off the primary mission, which is to be the most lethal force in the world if called to do so. It, to, okay, I, I get that. Here's my rebuttal to mm-hmm. that. Um, it has more to do with how the military brings you in and the promises they make mm-hmm. and the expectations they set mm-hmm. than what their responsibility is in letting you go. I think they they screw that up on the way in. Our generation of service member, in my understanding, is the very first to sign a four-year contract expecting a lifelong relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you go back to World War II, right? You go back to World War II, a couple things are different, one of them being transportation. You mm-hmm. spend 30 days on a ship just to get home. Yeah. Yes. You've had a chance to talk it out. But you go even beyond that. You went off to fight and win a war as quickly as possible and come home and run that hardware store. Your eye never got off the ball. As a matter of fact, you won that war probably so you could go back and run that hardware store. Yes. Not so you could come back and be treated like a hero. Yes. Our generation didn't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Those guys in Vietnam that were drafted, they went off the war with all their buddies from high school. They never lost hometown because hometown went to war with them. Our generation didn't see that. We're the first generation to fight a war, a, re- a long war, under any circumstance in which we fought it in. And from that perspective, how we were recruited to fight it set the stage for how uh, dysfunctionally we got out. That hey, great point. Thank you yeah. for that, man. You, you know the uh, the thirty day ride home. I, I can only imagine, but that does give you time to 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 reflect, to to try to make sense of everything you've been through. But I do remember in Iraq they tried to they called it a third stop decompression. They started that. Um, in different phase, they started in different ways. Like for us, decompression leaving Iraq was to put us in tent city oh, in Iraq God. for two weeks. And all you can think about is like, if I have to be here, either let me go war or let me go home. This is like the worst. It's purgatory. So then in Afghanistan, they changed it and they took um, not everybody, but specialized units like SEALs or MARSOC or EOD. They took us to Germany and we did like a two or three week deal there. And that turned into a lot of getting in trouble is what that turned into. So, like, they tried, but they couldn't recreate it because you don't question why you're sitting on a ship for 30 days yeah. when that's the only way to get yeah. home. You question why you're sitting in Germany for, for 24 days. We, so we, they sent us to Heidelberg, Germany, and we were the first SEAL element to try this. Now, So I was the senior guy. I remember yeah. getting a call from, from the commanding officers like, Mike, the eyes of the world are upon you to see if this program works. You can't get in trouble. I said, hey, sir, you're sending – and this was right off the Battle of Sauter City. I'm like, you're sending like 50 SEALs uh, or any, I don't care what unit you're with, a combat unit yeah. to Heidelberg. I'm like, I'll do my best, but this is on you guys. Yeah. And it was like, you had to go see the shrink and we're like, we're done here, right to the bars and we just got That's right. Saved. But That's right. Uh, they did try putting them into a, uh, uh, uh aircraft bay and, uh, in San Diego and all the wives just drove and they're like, get my husband out there and yeah. get him home right that, now. That, Yeah, that's exactly right. Nobody's going to mess with a, uh, a, a wife. Um, it it would have been better to give everybody like some sort of logistical post in Kuwait or something. Like yeah. give them a mission that allows mm-hmm. that transition. But, you know, that costs money and time and resources. Man, that that's why, you know, I, I, I tell that's if you can use the GI Bill. For part of the transition, part of it is the four years of just figuring out who the yeah. hell I am, what I've been through. Yeah. How has it made me a better More human? important than the actual education. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't learn anything in uh, in college. So, I mean, did you talk about mindset and um, 
you, you, I mean, you set the bar high, man. Georgetown won that. I held not let anybody in these days, uh, I guess. <laughs> we both know that's not true, man. Off the charts, uh, intelligent. You, you start to form your foundation again. Um, political science, correct? I did. So I did a liberal studies major, which I think is infinitely more useful in the job I have now than political science. Mm. Political science would have taught me how to arrive to all the wrong conclusions. Mm-hmm. Liberal studies taught mm-hmm. me how to arrive to a conclusion. Critical. And, uh, and so I did liberal studies because I wanted to go to law school, and liberal studies weeded out all the sciences or all the math and science so I could get through college quicker and get into law school quicker. And this beautiful thing happened. That I, when I mentor people, I tell them, say, if, you'll set your, if you set your GPS to a destination and it sends you on a detour, take it. Right. Because that's that's that route comes up for a reason. And so same thing happened for me. Like when I was recovering, the Marine Corps would allow someone catastrophically injured to stay active duty. What they wouldn't do was let them stay in critical skills jobs. And so up until 2005, the Marine Corps didn't have special operations. Mm -hmm. So what we did have were critical skill assets, Mm -hmm. EOD, MARSOC, counter intel. So those treated differently in the Marine Corps, you couldn't stay in those job fields as critically injured. You had to be serviceable, deployable. So I, in my uh, arrogance and in the fact I was stubborn, said, bullshit, you want me to be a Marine, I'm going to be an EOD tech. Mm -hmm. Those two things are adjoined. I'm not Mm -hmm. a Marine if I'm not an EOD Mm -hmm. tech. So I went to the EOD field. I went to the senior enlisted or the senior LDO. Mark Targer said, would you be on board with creating billets and keeping severely wounded in the job field? So, of course, he says, heck yeah. Yeah. You know, of course. So I work with him for a week. We come up with a structure. We take it to the EOD annual working group. They just happen to fall in line about that time. I put. He makes me do it because that's the Marine Corps way. Uh, this legless sergeant, maybe staff sergeant. Uh, I got promoted after injury. Uh, take, this legless sergeant comes down and pitches to all these senior uh, EOD techs in the Marine Corps, keep your wounded, and here's where we can put them. They're all on board, so then the next stop, Sergeant Major Commandant of the Marine Corps, they sign off on it. The best thing about it was I never once consulted the Sergeant Major at Wounded Warrior Battalion who came into my room and told me I couldn't stay in EOD tech two weeks after I got injured. So, like, I was so – that was my motive. Like, tell me I can't, I'll yeah, do it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Never tell an American they can't accomplish something. They'll punch you right in the face. And so that happened. So now it's like, okay, well, I just worked for a year to stay in the Marine Corps, and they're going to let me go to college, let me go to college. I go to college, and I'm like, oh, eh, I think I want to be a lawyer. I know yeah. how policy's yeah. made. I think I yeah. want to go make policy. And so I get a fellowship on Capitol Hill while I'm going to college, and um, and I learn how easy it is to affect policy if you're honest and come up with the, with the solution. Like the you know, a lot of people like one of the best leaders I've ever known hates this, but to me it made a lot of sense. I had an officer one time tell me, "Don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution." And I, I I've seen the counter argument, and I get there's more to it than that, but I love it. That's how I treated everything. I'm not going to tell you what you should fix. I'm going to come tell you how to fix it. And so that's how I handled things. And so by the time I made it through my undergrad, I was kind of done with college. Yeah. I knew what college yeah. was. I, it's like when I put a puzzle together, it's rare. I could put a 500-piece puzzle together. It's rare I put every piece in the puzzle. Once I figure out the puzzle, I don't need to see the other pieces go in to be content. I did the mental work. I can move on to something else. And that's a, it's a good and bad quality. And so once I made it through my undergrad, the desire for law school wasn't there because I'd, I'd gone through formal education, I understood it, 
I'd working on Capitol Hill in a capacity right of legal education through prat- practical application mm-hmm. already. Mm-hmm. And I got asked to go run a nonprofit in Texas. And the two law schools that I had an opportunity to attend were Georgetown and Harvard. And I uh, didn't want to live in Massachusetts. And I was sick of D.C. And Texas looked like the promised land. And I told my wife, Meg, I was like, you know, I still got money in the bank for school. Law school's always going to be there. You know, this is 2014, and it's like there aren't a lot of executive-level job opportunities being offered to me. Let's go to Texas and run this nonprofit and see how it goes. And that so, is the uh, the boot campaign. That's boot campaign. With yeah. Marcus Luttrell. And- yeah, so Marcus and Morgan were real involved in that for a long time, and uh and so I went out there and, and eventually became chief operating officer. So that started in an eight to 10 year career in the nonprofit world. And, uh, and, you know, not to fast forward too much, but that's kind of what happened between 2012 is when I started the nonprofit space in 2019 when I went on to be with Fox. That's one hell of a story arc, man. And congratulations. <laughs> I mean, would you have ever thought you would be on Fox News helping people give them a different perspective from no. your lens? I remember in the Marine Corps, what I, what was most fulfilling about my job was giving classes to Marines on IED threats and just giving them the ability to not die on their own action and discernment, like teaching them. In order to teach people, you have to win them over. In order to win them over, you got to understand them. In order to understand them, you got to have conversations with them. So when you you know you, when you set your schedule, you start where you want to be, you work your way backwards. That's how. Like I need them to learn this in order for them to learn it. They have to trust me in order to trust me, bring it all the way back to as soon as they show up, I don't walk in there cocky. I'll walk in there subtle and have conversations all the way through the room till I'm standing in front of them. And that prepares you to do what I do today. Also, when you're a six foot tall, brown headed white Marine in Oceanside, California, if you don't learn how to like juggle, you're not going to stand out. So uh, picking up a girlfriend also prepared me because there's a key aspect there where it's not about do you stand out, it's are you the, are you the one she, she could have a conversation with, right? Like, are you the one that didn't just tell her how awesome you are? So some of it was, you know, that, that angle of it too. And that requires a lot of moral courage <laughs> rather than <laughs> getting on a dating app and, and taking the, uh, yeah. the easy route. <laughs> so, Joey, with the, uh, the book, one, um, well, damn, dude, you've got a coloring book. Is that correct? That you, you t- blown away? Yeah. So the coloring book was a joke mm-hmm. that turned into a real thing. And we never marketed. I don't know how many of them we sold. I'm very oh, proud of You're going to sell more now. Yeah. So the coloring book is called Blown Away. And it is, um, it's a picture. It's a, it's a picture story of me from like joining the Marine Corps through getting injured and recovering. And then, so on the right side is a picture to color. And on the left side, are just little standalone pages of commentary. Most of it will be a, I'll pull a quote and what that quote means to me. Um, the Rifleman's Creed, I think, is on there, stuff like that. And it kind of builds a story. The reason why is by that point, that I did that coloring book in 2015 or 16. And by that point, I was coming to Fox and I would come on these panels and it'd be like Sean Parnell, who has like Outlaw Platoon, yep. or, you, yep. know, uh, you know, Marcus in his book or Rob in his book. And I'm like, I'm a Marine. What am I going to do? I'm going to do a coloring book and I'm going to put on it crayons not included for the safety of Marines, you know, like to kind of be lighthearted, kind of make a joke of the fact that, you know, of, so I have a picture like Sean and Rob with their books and me with my coloring book. Uh, I love it, dude. I love it. A good, uh, a good sense of humor. If, 
you know, what do you want to achieve with this book? And, and first off, you know, for the listeners, the fact that it's, you said, you sort of set the precedence, this is not about me. And I no. love that, man. I always love talking about my brothers and sisters yeah. more than I like talking about myself. But at the end of the day, what's the impact you want to achieve with the book? What would you want people to take away? I've spent the last 10 to 15 years uh, knowing these exceptional stories of regular people. I mean, exceptional. Like, why is Joey Jones successful? Because he's got the path laid in front of him by his friends. Why is Joey Jones inspired? Or why is he inspirational? And I hate to say it about myself, but other people do. It's because he's inspired. Um, I served with people that absolutely are exceptional. But they live ordinary lives because they're not peacocks. They don't, they don't, they're so secure in their accomplishments, they don't need us to tell them how awesome they are. They lived it. They saw their brother come home. They, they took care of the widow of the guy that died beside them. Mm. They did the difficult things that needed to be done. They don't need praise for it. And I'm not trying to get you to praise them. It means nothing to them, but I'm trying to get you to appreciate them and understand and believe in when we have people like that. And two, if you can read their story, and the duality of their very normal life and very exceptional experiences, then maybe you'll look in the mirror and say, you know what, man, I did survive bankruptcy. I did survive divorce. I did beat cancer. I did survive the loss of a child. I, I did. I am living with a terminal illness, and it is not killing my ability to enjoy life because that's what everybody goes through. All the regular people go through exceptional things. So in this book, I show you that all the regular warriors have done exceptional things. Now, there are some folks in here like Nate Boyer who are publicly known as an exception, right? Who starts college football at 29 years old at the defending national championship football team and, uh, and has never played it down in his life? Well, Nate Boyer did. That's pretty exceptional. But when you learn his story, it, what you really learn is he was never great at the things he chose to do, he just had the courage to go see if he could do them. That led to him being a Green Beret. It led to him being on an NFL football team. It's led to him writing and acting in a movie. He may not be the best at any of those things, but he had the audacity to believe he could do those things, and there were people in his life that, that wouldn't let him not do them. And then you flip the script and go all the way over to Keith Stancil, my best friend growing up. He's uh, the last chapter in the book, which is interesting to me because my instinct would have been to make him the first chapter. And because I worked with people that are smarter than me, being the last chapter really ties the bow on the whole thing. And so Keith Stancil and I grew up together. We became friends in the end of 10th grade. Up until that point, we hated each other because we chased the same women, and uh, which is absolutely true. And they all had a very similar version of the same name, which is kind of funny. Uh, and and I, I leave it there because my wife has that name. <laughs> like, but um, but Keith and I became friends through another guy that we were both close to. He grew up with Chris McDonald, and I played football and had classes with Chris McDonald. Keith and Chris had career military dads. Keith's dad was career Air Force mm -hmm. out in Arkansas, so we only saw him on the holidays. And then Keith's dad was our technology teacher, our middle school football coach, a pillar of the community, and he was a Marine uh yes. Mustang, who took our local artillery unit in central Georgia uh, or north Georgia to Desert Storm, and they had a pretty active deployment. He came back a, a hometown hero 
went right back to, co- to coaching and teaching middle school. And he was a, a hero to all of us. My family had no military experience that touched my life. And so they knew the military was in their future. I did not. They were huge influences on me. Chris's only problem is five foot eight. If he had been six foot tall, he had played football on Sundays or baseball six days a week. And an exceptional guy. Keith and I weren't as exceptional that way, um, but we were both smart kids. I was, a, I'll do anything, you know, let me, I need all the attention guy. And Keith was uh, like, I don't need anybody's attention. Mm. And so the three of us balanced each other out, best friends, inseparable. Uh, the, just the way things worked out, I went to the Marine Corps first. Keith followed closely behind to the Army. Chris went to college and actually, without telling his parents, left college to go to the Marine Corps boot camp as a reservist um, and then came back to college. And so we all went to Iraq in 2007 and eight. came home. Keith, quiet, simple guy. His dad wasn't around a lot when he was growing up. Mm-hmm. Later you realize the most important thing to him is to be a dad. He marries a woman who has a daughter. Uh, her daughter's dad was somebody we all knew, died from cancer. And Keith finds a mission in life of being a dad to a young lady that, that he didn't father. And then our friend Chris struggles. And I don't want to give it all away, but we end up losing Chris, and we fight real hard to keep him. Keith's going through all this, and he's doing it working 60 hours a week, living in our small town. He works on an assembly line, lays hardwood floors, has his, has a son with his wife. And I look at Keith, and I'm, I look up to Keith so much, and I, and I don't know I could do what he does. I don't know that I could be just so committed as he is. And he lives every day with some guilt because we lost our friend Chris, and he was, Chris was living with him in that time. But he lives every day with such grace and humility, and he has done exceptional things. He fought the war in Iraq. He lost buddies. He barely survived. And he came home, and he saw the relevance in marrying a girl from high school, raising her daughter, going to work every day, trying to be there for your buddy, and not needing a, a soul in the world to know it. That's uh, that's what I call the definition of a warrior yeah. or a hero. And warriors has nothing to do with the professional arms. It has everything to do with the mindset yeah. and living a life of character. You know, there, there's a quote, and I know you know this one from Isaac Newton. If I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants, <laughs> yeah. men and women like you uh, that were better than me, man. I well, We are good to do an article on this book. We're, we're going to provide all the links Pick it up. I've already. I'm probably a few chapters in on the Audible. That's how I consume books now, man. Um, uh, me too. I've, I've I've read the book, but I've also listened to it on Audible to see how goofy I sound. Did, you, <laughs> hey, you, you've. Uh, I, I I watched you this morning on the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Your ability to think critically and give different perspectives. You know, I went on shortly after you, or I went on before you. I'm like, dude, I I, I can't get to that level. You're, you're on a different level, man. It's. It is impressive how you've honed yourself, how you continue to hone yourself. And uh, I think young kids need to pick up this book and, and learn from the lessons that I know you're trying to instill for free. There are three themes in this book that I had no idea would be there that I didn't ask for, I didn't look for, and are consistent, and I think are, are important in American culture, not just in the South, but across the board, and, and are important in life. And that's the relationship with your father, hunting, and football. And as trivial as those may sound, all three of those teach you lessons so far beyond what they sound like. 
And, you know, all of us come from such different backgrounds and places, but there's very few exceptions in that entire book where those three themes don't stay consistent. And, you know, for one person, it might be something other than a sport, but it's being on a team early. And it might not be hunting, but it's, you know, going out and learning life-sustaining skills Mm -hmm. and then knowing you got to have somebody in your life that can teach you and uh, and to be that for somebody else. Uh, Amazing. And uh, I know you – so Fox Nation Outdoors, is that correct? Yeah, so I've – so, yes, I do have a show, Fox Nation Outdoors. Um, I'm a big hunter and fisher conservationist. Uh, you know, conservationists uh, get the outcomes that environmentalists cry about. <laughs> and so I'm a, I'm a conservationist. Teddy Roosevelt key. That's key exactly them. right. That's yeah. exactly right. And so I'm a, I, I enjoy the work of conservation and enjoying the world God created for us. So we have a show, Fox Nation Outdoors. We have another show, Patriots Playlist on Fox Nation, mm-hmm. that's really cool. And, and Wesley Hunt in the book was on that. Nate Boyer in the book was on Fox Nation Outdoors. Well, uh, if you ever want, we've got a concept, which, which we're calling Drop Hunt, where we skydive into hunts. So <laughs> if you ever want in, that would be we've fun. got you. We'll tandem you in. I'll get you airborne again. Um, That'd be cool. Into a hunt. We'll just make sure it's a good location like Montana. I'd be, which, unfortunately, I'd be you got to wait 24 hours until you can pull the trigger from air travel. Um, oh, really? Is that a, yeah, that's a Montana. So you've got to find a state yeah. that doesn't have a uh, restriction like I'm that. Glad, you know what? I'm glad they do that. I don't, we can cut this if you need to, but no, no, no. Uh, you know, I've seen, th- Boy, there, that depends. there are some other states where a guy gets on a plane in LaGuardia, lands, goes out with cash in pocket, squeezes the trigger, pulls the trigger, probably drops an animal, gets back on the plane and he sleeps in his bed that night. That's not honey. No, it's not. And so I, d- I don't mind little. See, that's what makes this country so great. Each state, each region has a culture of its own based on the aspects of what's there and what's pressuring it. And, like, as dumb as that sounds, I have a 24-hour rule, I understand why they do. The, the, the point, though, with outdoors is outdoors yeah. teaches you. It's the one element that no matter you know, how much tradecraft, field tradecraft you have, no matter, no matter how, my, how much experience you put somebody outdoors in just austere conditions— you're, you're, you're out of your mental and comfort, in physical comfort zones. Right. You learn. Hunting um, is a lifetime of experience. Killing is a, is a split second. Yeah. And to go out and hunt, whether you harvest or not, um, teaches you more about yourself and the world you live in than you'll ever learn in a book or anything. I mean, it just really is amazing. And, and having gratitude for the gift of the animal. Of That's right. The life Absolutely, man. Um, Joey, I can't thank you enough, man. Uh, looking forward to to watching what you do and continue representing the military because you're doing it better than most of us. Um, well, bro, appreciate your time. It's an honor. All right, guys.